Purple Heart. Nice left. Those weapons of mass destruction got to be somewhere. By 2014, the war in Afghanistan will be over. Nice left. Well, I, you know, general is not necessarily a general. Uh, no, nope. no weapons over there. He may be a communist. Nice left. Hey everyone, welcome to Eyes Left, the show for service members, veterans, military families, and anyone interested in issues affecting this community. This is your host, Mike Preisner. And your co-host, Spencer Rapone. Spencer, you just got back from the About Face convention, is that right? Yeah, uh, it was in the uh, Seattle area. Uh, it was a great time. I met a lot of uh, really stellar uh, anti-war activists, uh, some... Uh, who have been at it for almost, you know, 20 years now. Others who, you know, maybe broke in the past few years. But, you know, I learned a lot, uh, heard a lot of uh, great stories, and it definitely, uh, definitely, it definitely left me with a sense of inspiration and um, uh, strong feelings for the future. Uh, we also had some good, uh, I think, productive disagreements uh, and, you mm-hmm. know, uh, debates on the matter, which is just as critically important. So yeah, overall, a uh, great event. So special thanks and shout out to the people and about face veterans against the war who, you know, flew me out there and, you know, gave me food and housing and everything. I really appreciate you all. <laughs> yeah, that's great. You know, about face for those who don't know is uh, formerly Iraq veterans against the war, which, you know, I think founded in 2005. Um, mm-hmm. So been around for an extremely long time, gone through it a lot of its own transitions and everything, but it really great uh, community there and, and really important for, for a lot of people to, to get introduced to. So um, anything that they're doing that we should look forward to coming up, any campaigns or anything that people should keep an eye out for? Yeah, um, so I think everyone should keep their eye out on what's called the Drop the Mic campaign, M-I-C. So that stands for the Military Industrial Complex. And it's kind of the, uh, the tip of the spear of what About Face is doing right now, speaking to you know, the intersection of capitalist interests and how that perpetuates uh, the endless war, specifically the global war on terrorism itself. And, you know, many of About Face's members and uh, allies, accomplices and comrades are doing great work uh, to bring that to light. So, you know, if you have a minute, check out uh, the Drop the Mic campaign. Crazy misuse of funds and just the whole apparatus that exists that incentivizes war because there's so many people profiting off of it, uh, which we'll actually get into in one of our segments today. To start, though, our head story is this, um, that it just recently, a Marine in the 3rd Battalion, 7th Marine Regiment, which is out of 29 Palms, California, just received a Purple Heart. Uh, But at his ceremony and his paperwork for his Purple Heart, he received it for wounds sustained while deployed to an undisclosed location. Yeah, um, and you don't have to dig too deep to realize that that undisclosed location is Syria. Mm -hmm. Uh, And it, you know, the most important aspect of this to me, uh, and I've been thinking about this one a lot too, is that right now there's kind of this uh, narrative going around that, you know, any United States presence in Syria is strictly special operations. You know, you just got Green Berets there, maybe some SEAL teams, maybe Rangers. But other than that, that's mm-hmm. it. But given that this guy is, you know, just he's a he's a combat engineer. He's in the first combat engineer battalion, first which is conventional forces. It goes to show mm-hmm. you that there are already boots on the ground there, and it's things are starting to trend in the direction the way they started up in Iraq and mm-hmm. Vietnam. You know, this is just mission creep 
uh, at its finest. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, this really started under Obama. And this isn't just the buildup in Syria, which has been building up uh, troop forces, but in Iraq also, where, you know, Obama would announce, oh, we're just sending just 100 troops to Iraq. And then a month later, it'd be another 150 troops, and then another 200 troops. And the same thing's been going on in Syria, where at first it was just special operations. Now it's some more regular forces. Um, and it's building up. But then, you know, there's this impression that you know, no one pays attention to it. And this Purple Heart in this undisclosed location wasn't even news. And that's because, you know, the casualties are low. There's not a lot that U.S. forces don't seem to be in a lot of fighting. There's not a lot of U.S. deaths, even though there, there are U.S. deaths on a very regular basis. But people need to remember that that's something that can change extremely, extremely quickly. You know, the Iraq war only died down because essentially there was a truce made. And in fact, the U.S. government paid off uh, tens of thousands of fighters who had been attacking U.S. forces just paid them off to make it appear as though there was some kind of military victory there. Um, but when the recent troop buildup started happening, you know, at the end of Obama's administration, uh, these forces like Sadr's military, the Mahdi Army, other resistance forces, they said, if, if U.S. troops are c continue to build up in this country, we're going to start attacking them. Um, and so, you know, once there's a decision made that U.S. forces are all of a sudden going to be the target, it could very quickly spiral out of control and be just like things were at the at the height of the Iraq war, you know, where like 100 soldiers were being killed a week and, and violence was was growing even more rampant for the Iraqi people. And of course, when that happens, when that disaster starts, we know what the politicians and generals do. They're just going to send even more people into, into the meat grinder. And of course, the other thing is that the kind of whole justification, right? I mean, it's so contradictory where on one hand, we're being told we have to be in Afghanistan forever because... Al-Qaeda is there and these, these types of forces are there that we, we just can't accept in power and we must fight and defeat them. We're in Syria and actually U.S. forces in, in Yemen, too, seem to be supporting these same exact groups that the U.S. is saying we have to fight and die endlessly to defeat in Afghanistan. Yeah. And I think the other aspect of this that we need to kind of grapple with is the contradictions coming from the White House and the military itself on the, the presence in Syria, because I, you know, Trump and his campaign, of course, paid lip service to, you know, not being there. But ever since he's been in office, we've only seen bombings and an increase in U.S. Mm -hmm. presence in the region. And I think that kind of goes to show you the, the types of advisors and the people surrounding him, including, you know, the generals such as Mattis and, and uh, so on, that so many people think are the reasonable ones in this situation. Uh, quite the contrary. Then, of course, when you have John Bolton in there as well, mm -hmm. uh, there's no question that they're definitely trying to formulate some type of uh, longer-term commitment there. And it goes even beyond uh, the United States because right now uh, the, uh, the director of civil military operations for Combined Joint Task Force Operation Inherent Resolve is a French general. And the French, of course, have a vested interest in Syria mm -hmm. going back to uh, the early 20th century. Ever since Syria has been independent, uh, since 1946, uh, much like uh, other imperialist countries uh, losing their former territories, they kind of always have their eye on it. And so now they have another opportunity to, uh, you know, extend their influence in the region, uh, their uh, hegemony. And uh, not only France, but of course, Israel as well. The presence of uh, an actor who didn't walk in lockstep with their foreign policy always poses a threat to them. And so it's natural then that you, you have this U.S.-Israeli-French alliance, as well as other um, uh smaller and larger countries in the region. Exactly. And it really goes back to a project that was first announced under George H.W. Bush, under Bush Sr., uh, where he used this term, a new Middle East, where he said the United States was going to create a new Middle East. Yeah. And what he meant by a new Middle East was, an, uh, was a region of the world that had gone through uh, 
nationalist revolutions, anti-colonial revolutions at that, you know, a place that was once carved up by imperial and colonial powers uh, had gone through a wave of independence movements where they were all standing on their own and they were using their resources for themselves. Uh, you know, British and American and French interests were cut out of them. And when George H.W. Bush set out and said, we're going to make a new Middle East, he meant transforming it from this bastion of uh, anti-imperialism and, um, you know, a barrier to, to imperial interests expanding in, in the you know, most resource-rich region of the world. Uh, he meant turn it back into a, a vassal of, of United States power and U.S. imperialism. Uh, so it's really part of that. And so when we see these things that seem really contradictory, right, like Trump's, you know, one of his main criticisms of Obama was getting involved in the Syria war and how crazy it was. And then we see, you know, on the one hand, we have to fight al-Qaeda in Afghanistan and then uh, support them in Syria and Yemen. At face value, it seems like it doesn't make any sense because those things are very contradictory. But that's because they're not being honest about what the wars are about. You know, back, uh, you know, 150 years ago in the United States, they'd be honest. They say, we're invading the Philippines so we can take their land and take their resources and enslave their people. Um, they'd be honest about it. But today, the, just the language has changed. Where we say we're going places for human rights and we're going for democracy, but it's really the same exact motives. Uh, so that's why it appears as though none of it makes any sense. Well, it makes sense to them behind the scenes because they know exactly what they're doing. Right. And it's just another iteration of uh, the great power politics you see during World War One and the interwar era where you have things like the Sykes-Picot Agreement, mm. wherein you know, the British Empire and, and the French carved up different uh, spheres of influence uh, in the Middle East and North Africa. And you know, once those powers were kind of sidelined, and the, after the Second World War, of course, the United States inherited that mantle, and they're continuing that process today. So. Right, and of course, no people from the countries that were carved up were present at that meeting when the Sykes-Picot Agreement had. Uh, precisely. Mm -hmm. yeah. Right, so um, getting into our next story, there was just a massive military budget passed bipartisanly, of course. You know, the thing that Republicans and Democrats are completely united on is this really insane war budget, over a trillion dollars in spending for the year. Um, you know, the increase in the budget, which was like uh, over $50 billion increase from last year's military budget, that increase alone is larger than the military budgets of basically like every other country in the world. In fact, the US military budget alone, if you take the next 12 countries, like Russia, China, all the other major countries, if you combine the next 12 countries' military budgets, it's still smaller than the U.S. military budget. Yeah. Uh, and it goes to show you, uh, you know, the priorities of the United States, what's so grotesque about it is, you know, of course, we're, you know, we're socialists here, uh, but it, you don't even need like a socialist revolution to reallocate some of the resources uh, that the United States has right now that they, they put towards military operations and affairs. That's what's so repellent about it is if you took even a slight fraction, a slight fraction of that budget and reallocated it towards education and health care, uh, all of those you know, basic human rights would be covered uh, easily. But instead, we just have this this unbridled death drive of a system that just keeps pumping money into endless conflict, into new machinery, some of which doesn't even get used. Uh, and all that we're left with is, you know, a country that's crumbling infrastructurally, uh, people mm -hmm. dying for lack of health care, and most importantly, places like Afghanistan and Iraq and, and Syria, uh, Yemen, that know, uh, no peace whatsoever because there isn't any uh, ending resolution. What we have instead is an endless fight uh, that'll go on forever because guess what? 
Northrop Grumman, uh, Boeing, Raytheon, all of them make a lot of money from this, and they directly influence uh, the political process that establishes the current budget that we see uh, right now and how it keeps increasing every year. Yeah, and it's really hard to comprehend how much a trillion dollars is. I mean, we can see the headline, and it's just like, wow, a trillion dollars is a lot of money. But it's, it's really an unfathomable amount of money. You know, it, it's like, if you think a million dollars is a lot of money, which it is, a trillion is one million millions. The Iraq and Afghanistan war, when they were both raging, the price tag for just the cost of maintaining the occupation in Iraq and Afghanistan, and this is smaller than the overall military budget, it was $800 million a day was the cost of the Iraq and Afghanistan war. I mean, just imagine what you can do. I mean, you can just pay the college tuition of every single student in the country. You can pay for healthcare for every single person in the country. I mean, an $800 million a day price tag is really unbelievable. And it really just goes to show why we have common cause with people resisting in Iraq, people resisting in Afghanistan, people resisting uh, U.S. imperialism everywhere on the planet. Because poor and working people here in the United States, uh, their lives are gutted and schools are gutted and communities are gutted to pay for this massive military budget just to pay for the bombs and missiles and equipment that goes and destroys the lives of other poor and working people abroad. And there's only a small number of people who are benefiting from it. Those who have are the shareholders in the companies, are the CEOs, people who are sitting on the corporate boards. They're the ones that are that are profiting while us and the people that are being attacked are, are having our, our lives completely destroyed. Uh, and of course, much, much more so for those who are having their lives physically destroyed. Um, but let's look at what's in some of these, these this new budget, because there's a couple things that are a little ridiculous. This one thing is called the Army Futures Command, where they put out this really bizarre video about how we need this new branch of the military, not a branch of the military, but a new command in the army called Army Futures to make the U.S. military more lethal. Yeah, uh, there's this video, uh, if you want to Google it, which kind of goes through this whole process of the new technological advancements uh, that, that the army is positing for, you know, bringing the army uh, to the future and beyond. And it's, you know, again, like anything else, it's just really propagandistic. Uh, type saying that shows, you know, soldiers wistfully staring into the distance <laughs> and, and tanks just barreling through shit. Um, but from me, like watching this and reading about it, it's it's just the typical incoherence you see. I mean, it's for me, it's like it's just another repackaging of the the whole Donald Rumsfeld idea of creating this futuristic force uh, of highly uh, elite, uh, specially trained. Uh, soldiers and it, not one aspect of it talks about uh, any, anything of substance or content. It, it's just you know increasing the ability of the military to extend its reach globally with uh, you know just pumping itself uh, into these different technological. Uh, pro I, I just for me it's just so insane that this stuff gets repackaged every five to ten years mm -hmm. uh, without any clear cut message outside of hey we're gonna make the army more powerful, more efficient. And no one really questions it because it's so indecipherable and, and so stupid. And, and the people behind these programs are virtually you know, untouchable. Yeah, uh, and, it's, so. it's, and it's really just a big money-making operation. I mean, there's a reason. I mean, it, what, I was shocked one time. I went to Washington, D.C., and I got off the subway. And in the subway terminal, there's all these like ads for tanks and drones and armored vehicles, ads, you know? And it's like, well, I, I don't think anyone who goes to work here is gonna be buying 
a tank. Um, but it's because this is where the generals are that that are taking the subway or, or high-ranking officers or people who work in the Pentagon who are approving the contract. So when we talk about that, you know, $1 trillion a year military budget, a huge amount of that military budget is really just stuff that's allotted for corporate contracts, right? And so a lot of these things that the army uses and, and builds um, are really just you know, CEOs take generals into a boardroom. They show them this fancy thing on a video screen. They say, don't you want this cool thing in the army? And they're like, yeah, sure. Sign me up to buy a million of them. And here's a, here's a $8 billion. And it's just this blank check for any of these defense contractors who walk into the Pentagon and show them some fancy new arms expo thing. You know, it's just some general that just signs a check. And then there's just unlimited funds, taxpayer funds, uh, money that could be going to benefit our communities are just being spent on things that are just literally just wantonly killing and maiming people all around the world uh, for no purpose, just to use those things and spend that money. It, well, in the, uh, in the Army's press release on it, they say, you know, the, the whole, the point, what they're trying to do is uh, they're, they're seeking to leverage the talent of small, aggressive companies with revolutionary approaches to mm. the challenges we face. Private sector innovation, especially from non-traditional sources, is critical to the Army's future. So as you said, and this is trying to tap into all of the the ghoulish CEOs and defense contractors who really are the owners of wealth uh, in this country and get them to, you know, continue this self-perpetuating process of, of violence and uh, military uh, expenditure. Mm -hmm. And that's also why uh, if you're a general officer, all these general officers, when they retire, the number one thing they do, something like like an overwhelming majority of general officers when they retire, they go straight into sitting on a corporate board for these defense contractors, specifically the same ones that they give contracts to. So in this Army Futures Command, when it's incentivizing these aggressive new companies who are making weapons, it's this backroom deal where the, the, the head of the company is, giving, is getting this deal with this general, but this general is signing this deal and giving them all this money because he's going to retire in two years and then he's going to go take a you know, a seven figure salary working at that same exact company when he gets out. Um, and then some, you know, hundreds of people are going to die under the, the weight of whatever weapon that was, you know, and soldiers are going to get blown up using it. So it's just a really obscene money making operation. Oh, yeah. And actually, I want to let people know that this Army Futures Command Center is going to be built in Austin, Texas. Yeah. So if you're in Austin, Texas, if you're an activist, if you're an anti-war activist, um, this is coming to your town. I know that Austin has a, has a rich uh, progressive movement there. Keep an eye out for where this Army Futures Command is going to be because if you want to confront it and confront the vast squandering of, of our money to destroy the lives of people abroad, this is the location to do it, right there in Austin, Texas. And, and I'll say, I have never, I've never encountered a soldier... Uh, who's below like the field grade level that is actually excited or on board with any of these <laughs> idiotic programs, especially something called like the Army Futures Command. So if you want an opportunity to reach um, other soldiers or if you are actively in a peer, like talk to them about this stuff. Because I remember when I was in, when I'd see programs like this or, you know, we'd be at a summer training uh, event and some weird contracting company would come in and have us try out their new piece of equipment. I remember most of the people there just rolling their eyes and thinking it's completely silly. And it just goes to show you that the only people who really do have a vested interest in this are the ones that already are on the fast track of their career towards, you know, pinning stars. And then, like you said, sitting on a boardroom and making money uh, selling all these things. So it's just, you know, something really important to keep in mind if you're trying to strategize uh, an anti-war movement. Well, look at something like this and look at how you know, a lot of soldiers are on food stamps or 
it, it just shows you that, you know, as incoherent and, and bizarre and just downright stupid it is, I, most of the people inside and outside the ranks, I think, would would agree with you. But the problem is, it's like, what do you do about it? And how do we approach it? Uh, it it kind of reminds me of this idea, you know, Adam Curtis has this idea of hypernormalization, wherein we know there's a problem, we know we need to address it, but we're paralyzed with what to do. Mm-hmm. And I think, you know, when we, if we really examine uh, things such as this, that it'll help us get to an answer on, on how to take action in a tangible and substantive way. Yeah. And, you know, just to add one other thing is that one way that uh, soldiers can, can look to kind of how much the command really doesn't care about you is that I remember when the suicide epidemic was really raging in the army, uh, it was leaked that commanders of the base hospitals were instructing the post doctors not to diagnose people with PTSD. Uh, who had come back from Iraq and Afghanistan, but instead give them pre-existing conditions or diagnose them with other like personality disorder. But they didn't want to diagnose them with PTSD, even though they clearly had it to save money on paying disability and compensation benefits and paying for treatment. I mean, that is such a minuscule amount of money in comparison. And a lot of lives were lost. A lot of suicides happened because of that crisis. Um, I remember one, one guy's name was Colonel Holmes at Fort Lewis. And actually, so many soldiers on base became part of a public campaign where they were talking to the media uh, about this practice of intentionally denying people PTSD diagnoses to save money. And in fact, many of them commit suicide as a result. Uh, this guy was fired and they were forced to retract the policy and issue retroactive diagnoses to people. But it took a struggle on the base and, and within the units for that to happen. And so to have these commanders who are just really giddy over any new toy they can get with a $10 billion price tag on it. But then if there's like a $10,000 a year disability claim that for someone that, that came back from the war and, and they can't sleep at night and they're all fucked up, uh, but telling people not to give them the treatment that they need, um, it really just shows that the commanders, the general officers, all the way up the chain of command through the, the politicians, you know, they're in it for themselves. They're in it for their own profits. They're in it for the profits of big corporations. Your life means absolutely nothing to them. And this military budget stuff really shows it. Another one of these things that's included in this budget is the Space Force. Oh, yes. This is actually, this isn't just like a program within the military. They're defining this as a separate branch of the military, right? So you're going to have your Army, Navy, Marines, Air Force, and the Space Force. It's a separate branch, and it's defined as a fighting branch branch of the mili- of the military. And Mike Pence, when he announced it, he said this pretty, pretty bizarre thing. He said this, the Space Force is for the next generation of Americans to confront the emerging threats in the boundless expanse of space. Like, what the fuck is he talking about? The emerging threats in the boundless expanse of space? Well, I think, um, again, with, you know, no uh, way forward, with no actual actually existing solution to the problems those in power face, they kind of turn away. I mean, it's, you know, in terms of like space itself, I mean, this is why folks like Elon Musk and other, you know, those with obscene wealth, rather than actually trying to devote any of their status or power to correcting the problems here or trying to offer some degree of help or aid, uh, they say, no, fuck that. We're going to look elsewhere. And, you know, outer space Mm -hmm. kind of serves as this, it's it's almost like this escapist fantasy. I mean, mm-hmm. who wouldn't like, you know, the, I mean, space is a very interesting, you know, cool thing. And it's always captured our imaginations. But mm-hmm. it's at this point, it's little more than, 
you know, those in power throwing their hands in the air, recognizing that they have no answer for the structural issues we face. And instead of addressing those structural issues, it's like, well, hey, maybe we could uh, gen up a lot of support and excitement for this complete fantasy so that maybe sh soldiers who are into Gundam or maybe soldiers who watch Neon Genesis Evangelion will join now. Right. It's right. complete, complete nonsense. And who's, who are we fighting in space? I mean, it's, I understand them trying to give a justification of just we're going to explore space more, but it's like to say that there's an emerging enemy in space, that's a pretty bizarre thing from the well, people yeah, that are supposed I, to be in <laughs> But, but it, it shows you even space travel, in their mindset, it has, uh, there's an imperialist content yeah, to it. There's right. always, you know, an enemy lurking around the corner. There's always something you need to be looking over your shoulder for. And, and even in space travel where, I mean, in their minds, they're just waiting for, you know, the next place to colonize and extract resources from. So, yeah. You know, when we use starship troopers for our promo video, when we launched yeah. the podcast, I didn't expect that it would really come to fruition in this way. I mean, a great anti-war satirical anti-military film, but right. it's, it's become a little bit more reality now. huh? Yeah. It's a little bit on the nose now, looking back at it now, yeah. <laughs> you know, so one of the other things in this military budget, is what is the most expensive weapons program in U.S. history, actually the most expensive weapon system in the history of the world, the F-35 program. You know, these F-35s, it's just, you know, the, the latest fighter jet, unbeatable, supposedly fighter jet. This is a $1.5 trillion program. So when you talk about that, that military budget of, you know, $1.3 trillion, for 2018, this weapons program alone, uh, which is run by Lockheed Martin, is going to be taking in all this money, all this taxpayer money, $1.5 trillion program. Really, really absurd. With the F-35, again, it just shows this self-destructive process of the military. It, it can go no other direction, but producing more weapons, producing more armaments, and justifying their use. You know, it's it's the tail wagging the dog uh, in this case. These companies make a lot of money off of these uh, weapon systems, but uh, thankfully they really don't have a place to be used. So then the United States and the State Department uh, and other various agencies and organizations will have to find situations that they could influence so that they do uh, get to use them and, and justify their use uh, on other human beings. Uh, and, and that's always been the situation uh, for the past um, uh, 40 to 50 years, uh, especially. And again, this is just another iteration, uh, just a bit more hyper-intensified uh, uh, given the current uh, political and social uh, situation. But this has been going on for a while now and, and th they don't know how to stop and they'll continue to stop until it collapses in on itself. Yeah, and you know, actually the hilarious thing to this, and really this is the silver lining with the F-35, is that they don't actually work. So, you know, the U.S. military yeah. is spending all this money on them. They're all grounded because they have all these malfunctions that they can't even determine the cause of. And so uh, pilots who are flying them are getting like asphyxiated. They can't breathe and they, they're passing out and things like that because it has some major defect that they have yet to determine what it is. So while the U.S. is pumping, you know, this trillion dollars into buying these new aircraft from Lockheed Martin, um, the thing doesn't even work, which is, which is a good thing because we don't want these things used or deployed anywhere in the world. But it just shows kind of, you know, comical squandering of resources where they're, they're touting this as like the most innovative jet ever to exist. 
Uh, and the thing's just on the ground because no one can fly it because they pass out from not having any air. You know, and there's this other side to it, which is, you know, we heard a lot about Trump uh, telling, you know, other countries in NATO they got to pay their fair share and the U.S. is tired of, you know, like bearing the brunt of all the cost of the protection of all these NATO countries and stuff like that. So this really meant Trump was going around to all the NATO countries and basically pressuring them into buying these F-35s. Like, for example, Norway alone bought $10 billion worth of F-35s because of Trump's prodding. So essentially, Trump is acting as this international arms dealer, but working specifically for Lockheed Martin. Like he's their salesman going around all these countries and bullying them into buying more. I mean, it's really insane to see uh, that this is the role that Trump's playing. Yeah. Um, and again, for all the um, decorum Democrats out there and those types of people, you know, uh, the fact that this business mogul, this real estate mogul is uh, going to different countries and talking with different world leaders to sell uh, military grade weapons. Uh, that's actually completely in line with the function of the president mm -hmm. of the United States. Yep. And it goes to show you, perhaps it isn't so surprising then that this uh, fortunate son born into wealth, now at the seat of the most powerful position on earth, is uh, actually quite a quite an obvious choice um, and keeping in line with the long tradition of United States presidents who were either bona fide war criminals or those who supported the business interests at the expense of 99% of the population in the United States and around the world. So, Yeah, I guess the, the big difference is that he's Trump is like bragging about it as if it's some great foreign policy right. achievement when it's really just about profits for this one corporation. I mean, Lockheed Martin released that in their first quarter of 2018, they had net sales of $11.6 billion. That's the first quarter of 2018. And so they're sitting pretty, they're making a, they're, everyone who's high up in that company is making an ass load of money, uh, having this personal salesman going around, uh, hucking these things that, that don't even work. Um, you know, the cost of one F-35 could drastically improve the lives of uh, so many millions of people in the United States. Uh, the cost of one F-35 could pay for the reparations that we so desperately owe uh, to Iraq, Afghanistan, other countries we've destroyed. Um, and, you know, and just this practice of selling these arms. I mean, Trump isn't just bragging about selling it to Norway and NATO countries, but he's even bragging about all the weapons that he was selling uh, on behalf of corporations to Saudi Arabia so they could yeah. use it to commit a genocide in Yemen. I mean, it's just really disgusting stuff. Um, you can't look at the role of U.S. military and the U.S. is the world's biggest arms dealer and not be extremely disgusted with what it is and, and still want to be a part of it. Yeah. And, and Trump aside, again, and this for me is instructive to resist uh, the, the impulse that we need to solely oppose Trump. It's like, you know, Trump's a feature of this larger systemic issue because there's hardly any presence whatsoever in Congress outside of maybe a few uh, individuals and maybe a group here and there that actually oppose this on a structural level. Uh, and mm -hmm. until we have that uh, legitimate uh, opposition, uh, th this is gonna, going to continue. Trump's going to brag about it. Trump's going to say it's this grand achievement. People are going to be, you're going to criticize him and say, uh, how dare you? But it's going to continue until we actually articulate um, a competing moral vision for society and, and build that movement, uh, which can actually resist uh, what Trump is doing and, and those around him and, and those who... Um, don't challenge him. They're just as much as a problem. 
Yeah, exactly. And anytime you hear the, the liberal pundits or people on Fox saying, you know, how are you going to pay for all these things that that socialists are saying we can have, like, you know, adequate health care for, for people and, and children uh, and adequate housing for, for people and children. Um, this is it. I mean, this alone, just F-35 program alone could pay for all the things that they're wondering about. And while there's this blank check of seemingly unlimited amounts of government funds for the military and for the defense industry, uh, the Trump administration also introduced sweeping cuts to things that people actually need. For example, the food stamp program or the supplemental nutrition assistance program was cut by $17.2 billion. Considering that food insecure families receive only about $100 a month on this program, uh, that $17 billion is going to affect many millions and millions and millions of families uh, and children who are food insecure, which is a huge epidemic in this country. He also cut about $7 billion from the Housing and Urban Development Fund. And in particular, Section 8 vouchers, which help low-income families get into housing, is being cut by $1 billion. It's estimated about a quarter million low-income families are going to be losing their housing assistance and are going to be in danger of being out on the street. What a country to be proud of. And you have to look. I mean, we know that military recruiters focus most intently on poor and oppressed neighborhoods. You know, that Los Angeles and New York City is where... They focus their their most recruiting efforts, you know, places that are majority poor, majority people of color. Um, and so if you're one of these people that joined because you didn't see any options, you know, you, you saw your community was in shambles. You saw there is no jobs. You knew that you couldn't afford uh, the burden of going to college. Uh, so you joined for some kind of way out. And, you know, of course, like most people dislike the military and hate being in the military. But then you see this and you see that your community didn't have to be in that situation. Your college didn't have to be uh, something that would put you into debt. The job market didn't have to be abysmal. Uh, it could all of things it could all be solved with just a fraction of the money that's spent on these programs. Um, and so it shows you that who the real enemy is. The real enemy isn't someone that you're told to go use these multi-billion dollar weapons against. Uh, it's the people that use them to destroy your neighborhood and the neighborhoods of people just like you around the world. Yeah, and one final point on that. This is also why we need to be... Um leery uh, of the social democrat impulses because even yeah. if we did reallocate some of those resources uh which it, and it's so easy and if, if you know the democrats or uh, ostensible social democrats in the party would articulate that you know it, it would i mean it would be such a a slam dunk uh for their campaign if i want to but but they won't and, and even if they mm -hmm. did though even if you know that gained traction there will still exist the basic structure to allow that to arise once again. And those who are carrying that out right now would use everything within their power, including violence, uh, to suppress that movement. So this is why, again, uh, we, we need to articulate a powerful socialist vision and, and get that movement up and running, and including uh, the voices of, of veterans, because we have a responsibility, uh, mm -hmm. not only to those oppressed in this country, but to those who we inflicted violence upon either directly or indirectly around the world. All in the name of national defense, even though we haven't fought a defensive war since the War of 1812 yet. Right. So everyone can somehow be okay with a defense budget, so-called defense budget that, you know, right. could pay for every single thing that people need. To, yeah, to it's the life. War Department. It's not the Department of Defense. They, they changed right. that 50, 60 years ago as a cipher. <laughs> but yeah. Absolutely. Um, you know, a related story that we're getting into next is, you know, this is the first time we're covering... What's happening with the, the Veterans Administration, the VA system? It's been going on for a while, this, this move to privatize the VA. You know, I, Spencer, I know that you've had not much interaction with the VA system because you just, 
got out and are just starting on your long, arduous path with the VA. Oh yeah. Um, but you know, I got I got out in 2005, and so I've been a, a patient of the VA for quite some time. You know, it it gets a really it gets a really bad rap. But there's certain reasons for it. I mean, overall, I mean, I'm, I'm really fortunate and grateful to, to have the VA and anyone who has it is. And the great thing about it is that it's a centralized system. I mean, it's mm-hmm. how like a centralized socialist healthcare system would work, where it's not like one doctor's office here, doesn't communicate with his office, other uh, doctor's office there. It's all centralized. So if I show up, if I'm just driving through Arkansas and walk into a VA clinic, they have all my files. They can treat me for any 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 department I need, it's just all there and it's all packaged together, you know, and, it, and it's free or, or low cost uh, if you don't qualify for the free stuff. And then, but there's been this push to privatize it and to outsource all of these little departments that are centralized into one building and outsource them to private doctors and corporate hospitals. And the way that they have been pushing the privatization is to say, well, the VA doesn't work. It has this backlog. It's failing on all these things. And they hype up all these stories about like hundreds of backlogs on disability claims and things like that. But the reason for that is they're intentionally understaffing it. There are thousands of vacant positions at the VA for nurses, for doctors, and for administrators that the government intentionally does not fill. So they have less people working. They do worse of a job because you just can't manage a caseload if you're not fully staffed. And then they say, oh, look, it's not working. We have to privatize it. So we know that that's been the plan and what's going to happen. But this new story that just came out, ProPublica just released a story where they obtained hundreds of documents through the Freedom of Information Act that show who is actually making the decisions in the VA right now. We know there's some internal civil war stuff going on in the VA those who are leading it that are trying to resist the privatization. Uh, Trump is, is committed to pushing the privatization. In fact, he tried to put his that doctor at the head of the VA, who is like the one that said he's the healthiest man alive or the healthiest president of, of any president in U.S. history. Like obviously just a complete shill who will do anything for, for a paycheck. Mm-hmm. But this story says, so three of President Donald Trump's allies who are also members of his private Mar-a-Lago club in Palm Beach have been acting as, quote, shadow rulers at the U.S. Department of Veterans Affairs. Despite having no U.S. military or government experience, of course, that's not necessary for this, uh, this informal council has been quietly shaping the administration's policies affecting millions of veterans, influencing personnel decisions at the VA. Um, so it's these three men, these three super rich dudes who are members of Mar-a-Lago and no Trump through that. You know, to be a member of Mar-a-Lago, it's like a quarter million dollars a year in dues, uh, not to mention what you pay at the restaurant and, and all that crazy stuff. Um, but this is a really unprecedented thing. We're just these three rich guys. Three rich guys, just, one of them, yep. uh, who's the, uh, the head of Marvel Entertainment, Ike Perlmutter, who's, he, <laughs> he himself is this like shadowy, uh, I guess Emperor Palpatine-esque figure who no one really knows about. <laughs> so that makes it even more disturbing. You also have uh, is it Bruce Moskowitz, who's this Palm Beach doctor who kind of does like that. What they market is this like upper crest t- kind of healthcare you get in rich communities as, as another means of undermining you know socialized healthcare. And then um, mm-hmm. uh, Mark Sherman, who's uh, just an attorney, and you know he he represents typically, you know, rich clients and so on and so forth. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, it's just going to be a money-making operation for them. I mean, they're going to get some kickbacks from these corporate hospitals that are going to benefit from outsourcing the VA, and it's going to destroy the VA system. I mean, this is happening to every 
quasi-socialist institution that uh, we have in the United States, from the post office to the fire department, there's this attempt to outsource all of its functions to private companies, uh, understaffing it to make it look bad, and then and then outsourcing it to private companies, because that's the nature of capitalism. It's uh, especially in this monopoly era. It's to gobble up every single piece of profits and capital that you can. And then once it's all gobbled up, fight over it to redistribute it and into smaller and smaller numbers of hands. So that's what's happening with the VA now. And so if you're someone who joined the military thinking that you're going to get these benefits, even the things like the GI Bill, right? If you, if you join because you're like, oh, well, it's the only way I can get healthcare for my family. Um, and when I get out, I'll be covered after I do my two to four years. Um, that's not guaranteed. I mean, this could actually go away really quickly. And in fact, part of this VA privatization is trying to uh, turn down people's disability claims. If you're getting a disability and compensation payment, they're going to be calling you up to go into some private doctor to reevaluate you, to downgrade your claim. They're, they're definitely not permanent. And we see now these, these billionaire Mar-a-Lago club guys are going to be doing their best to destroy it. Yeah. And I think what's happening right now to the Department of Veterans Affairs is the quintessential example of you, you have an ostensibly socialized uh, uh, public institution, and it, it has its basic uh, functions. It could be better, um, of course, you know, if we actually had a social system. But uh, um, relatively speaking, it, it's one of the best examples out there of how to have, you know, uh, a socialized healthcare system. And the point of, you know, what we're invested in doing is trying to make that available for everyone, not just But what's happening, as you said, is that private capital is trying to undermine it. And it's because of those private capital, of those capitalist interests in general that are influencing the uh, VA, that is why it is having those structural issues. That is why it is kind of a drag right now trying to navigate through it. And that's why it is so Kafka-esque. It's not because of the, the socialist aspect or the socialistic aspect of it. It's precisely because that those uh, who comprise the ruling class and its interest groups are doing everything they can to undermine it. And then they kind of have this reverse calculus where they say, aha, see, there it is. That's the problem with social. We need mm -hmm. to privatize it further. But they're actually a problem. And what they're trying to morph it into is why things are kind of grinding to a halt. And there are so many issues, as you've you know previously described. Yeah, and it speaks to this kind of joke of the democracy that we have in this country, which actually leads to, you know, it connects back to that, sto that story of the Purple Heart being awarded to someone in an undisclosed location. I mean, the, the VA as a public institution, it, its committees are subject to review. It's subject to, to public scrutiny. It's subject to government oversight. But this shadow committee within the VA, no one has any oversight over it. No one has any say what they do. It's just existing on its own and serving as this um, you know, this rich guy click that's now all of a sudden uh, a part of the government through no decision of, of voters, no decision of people in the United States, just like, you know, that soldier that got wounded in, in Syria. You know, it was never up to us whether or not we were going to start sending uh, soldiers to Syria to, to fight and die and kill people. Um, you know, it's just it just happens. I mean, that's the, the choice that we have in this country. Every four years we get to vote for which uh, warmonger will lead us for the next four yeah. years. Um, but when it really comes down to things that impact our lives, I mean, where, where are the decisions? Yeah, I, uh, I sent you um, a video last night. I had a buddy who sent it to me like a couple of days back, but uh, mm -hmm. it happened in November of 2017. And that makes it even more eerie to me. It's, uh, it's the Department of Veterans Affairs ringing the New York Stock Exchange uh, bell, as you know. And it's... Marvel Entertainment is like sponsoring this event uh, in, in tandem with the VA. And oh, wow. on either side 
of you know the 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 suits and the, you know the soldiers that are standing up on the stage. Do you have these guys in like you know a Captain America costume, a Spider Man costume down on the ground? <laughs> and I I can't emphasize enough how much of a kind of a, just a clear examination of the times we live in that you have probably these seats of political uh, and economic power uh, in the United States and the world. And you have these cartoon comic book characters going around waving, you know, slapping hands. And as you said, completely divorced from any normal, you know, working class person, you know, goes like it just orders of magnitude beyond the scope of any of us. And it's, it's just utterly mind rending. And it's almost like, <laughs> I don't know if you, if you, you're familiar with these, Mike, but there are these like videos that were discovered the past couple years of like uh, YouTube children videos. And it's like these weird algorithmic things. And it's just a hodgepodge of different like animated and mainstream characters coming together. And there's no coherent quality. There's no narrative. And it was almost like watching that play out in real time. Uh, and, and it just is, just like, again, it's just astonishing, both in how horrifying it is and how utterly stupid. But, you know, our current society is kind of like, you know, the intersection uh, intersection of horrifying and stupid. So there you have it. But I mean, maybe we could link to that in the description. Just yeah. again, it just it's like the perfect glimpse in, into the uh, insanity uh, of, you know, 2018 right now. And these are the biggest advocates for war too. I mean, these are the people when there's some new war brewing are the ones that are like, yeah, like we got to, you know, pat our soldiers on the back and send them off to battle. And it's, it's such a great thing um, because their life is going pretty good and they know their life's going to get a little bit better if we go to war. Um, but we have absolutely nothing in common with them. You know, our lives are in no way similar to the life that, that they live. Um, and it's really, it's, it's almost uh, good that they're putting it on display like that and celebrating it because it's easy for all of us to see uh, how much of a sham it all Yeah, is. and uh, you know, sometimes we, we have a tendency to throw around the phrase late stage capitalism, but I got to tell you, this video, that is the quintessential <laughs> example of what late stage capitalism constitutes. And well, we'll definitely uh, link to the video in our SoundCloud description. Um, so be sure to check it out to see how, how truly insane this video is. Radical. Today, your soldiers, sailors, airmen, marines, and coast guard are better educated than before, are better informed, and understand what the war is all about. So, right about now, it's time for our radical military uh, history examination. And Mike today wants to talk to us about the Port Chicago disaster. A lot of the rebellions and mutinies and acts of resistance by U.S. service members that we're going to be talking about on this show, uh, a large number of them have to do with resisting U.S. wars. But that's not always what leads to mutinies and rebellions in the military. And many times they're actually about racism and working conditions. Uh, such was the case in July of 1944. The World War II, of course, was raging. And we know that African-American service members were really put in roles that were the hard labor roles, the, the jobs that no one else wanted to do um, because they weren't considered uh, good enough to do anything else. Uh, this was what African-American soldiers were sentenced to. And so one of these jobs was working stateside at a place called Port Chicago in California, loading all of the munitions onto ships 
uh, to go off and be used in the fighting in World War II. Now, this is extremely dangerous, high-skill work to be loading uh, munitions onto ships that are, you know, bombs that are meant to blow up uh, whole parts of cities. But that didn't matter to the white officers who were in command of these all-black uh, port-loading crews of U.S. Navy sailors. In fact, they were forcing them to go as fast as possible in this loading. And it was even discovered afterwards that the white officers were placing bets on each other's teams that they were commanding. And so if uh, one junior officer's team loaded faster than the other one, he got a bunch of money. So behind the scenes, while they're, for lack of a better term, whipping these people into uh, loading bombs as fast as they possibly can, they're trading money behind the scenes, uh, you know, making a game out of it. That culminated with what was called the Port Chicago disaster, where because of working them in crazy long shifts, because they were forcing them to work as fast and unsafely as possible, there is an explosion on one of the ships. And it was an absolute disaster. 320 people were killed, mostly black sailors in the Navy. 320. I mean, it's one of the hidden casualties of World War II. They're not considered part of World War II casualties, although they absolutely should be. So 320 were killed. And after they were killed, of course, the politicians said, well, there should be compensation to the families of those that were killed in this disaster. And so they, they offered something like $5,000 per family uh, who had someone killed. When they found out that the vast majority of victims were black, they downgraded that amount by like 80% or something. And so they, they, families just got a fraction of what they would have gotten if the people were white. But as a result, right after that disaster happened, they ordered people to keep loading the ships with the same practices and with the same speed. On one of these at Port Chicago, uh, all of these black sailors who had just known about this massive disaster where 320 of their brothers were killed, uh, they're told to do the same thing. And you know what they did is they refused to do it. 258 African-American sailors refused to load the ammunition. Now, I want you to think about that number, right? I mean, this isn't just a spontaneous act of rebellion. I mean, think of the organization and the leadership and the communication, all the things that had to happen to get 300 sailors on the same page to conduct an illegal act. And of course, mutiny is punishable by death. So the people that took part in this strike, this really, you could call it a strike versus a, a mutiny, um, they knew that they were facing very serious consequences, but they refused. Of course, they were threatened. Uh, they were told that they're going to go to jail. They were told that they could be executed. Uh, but in the, the meetings that they had amongst themselves, the self-organizing they did, they decided that they were all together, not going to load the ships until there is a proper uh, safety measures put into place to prevent another disaster. Of course, the white officers didn't think it would be a big deal if there was another disaster, another 300 black sailors got killed. Uh, and these black sailors knew that and they organized amongst themselves to save their lives. Um, of course, eventually they were all put on trial. They're all court-martialed. 50 of the people were identified as the leaders of the mutiny. They became known as the Port Chicago 50. So 50 out of the 300 were identified as the leaders and central organizers. A really incredible act uh, of organizing. They tried to give them uh, life in prison, um, but you know they sentenced them to something like 15 years of hard labor. Uh, of course, the next year they were acquitted, um, which, was a, which was a great thing, and it took a struggle to get them acquitted. But it shows that when you're in a position where you know that your life is being uh, callously treated by officers who don't care anything about you, which was the case here and is the case on the battlefield in Iraq and Afghanistan or anywhere else, they realized that they had the power 
to change it. And that if they organized together and they collaborated together and they all stood on the same page, that they could stop another disaster from happening. And they did it. And knowing the consequences, they still did it. And because the struggle continued around them, all of them got out of jail. All of them were safe. And it was a major, major victory uh, for the black sailors and was an example to the rest of the military. Uh, for me, despite all of that, one of the most telling aspects is that even though they, you know, originally, you know, the 15 years prison, hard labor, dishonorable discharge, when they were released, after they completed their service time, they were still given general under honorable conditions discharges. They mm -hmm. weren't even given yep. their honorable. So it goes to show you that despite them winning their trial, they still weren't giving, given the, the best possible outcome in terms of discharge characterization, obviously because they were black and obviously because they resisted uh, military orders. And so James Baldwin in The Fire Next Time has, I think, an important commentary on the role of black soldiers in World War II. Um, and, and World War II in general, particularly in the United States, has this hero narrative to it that, you know, the, the United States came in and saved the day from everyone. But it's a little bit more complicated other than that. And, and Baldwin says uh, that white people were and are astounded by the Holocaust in Germany. They did not know that they could act that way. But I very much doubt whether black people were astounded, at least in the same way. For Baldwin, the treatment accorded to black people during the Second World War marks for him a turning point uh, in the black person's relation to America. He says, to put it briefly, and somewhat too simply, a certain hope died. A certain respect for white Americans faded. And he goes on to, you know, discuss various uh, situations in World War II where black GIs were accused of rape, uh, were accused of other crimes, slandered, and they faced, you know, punishment similarly to the Port Chicago uh, 50. And this ties in then to... Well, how we should really view uh, World War II is that in Donnie Gluckstein's book called The People's History of the Second World War, he articulates that World War II has a dual character to it. And that, yes, the fighting on the ground itself was a radical anti-fascist struggle. But the mm. Allied governments were far more interested in creating a new order to suit their interests. Uh, and what kind of expresses this, I mean, for example, in, in the UK... Churchill praised Mussolini when he first came to power. Mm -hmm. And though he disliked Hitler, he viewed the Soviet Union and his fear of, you know, the quote-unquote Bolsheviks, uh, usually for someone like him, a dog whistle for some other type of anti-Semitic conception mm -hmm. of communism. But he, he, he despised the Soviet Union far more than the Nazis, as did uh, the United States and France. And until the Nazis started threatening their own uh, interests, on a larger scale, they really kind of allowed them to rise. Uh, and we've uh, plenty of people have heard the stories of, you know, Jewish refugees trying to escape to America and being turned away. Um, and so uh, this particular moment, the Port Chicago disaster, goes to show that even if strategically the United States was fighting against uh, the Nazis and uh, Imperial Japan, the United States, the UK, France, the Allies in general were resolving their own fascist tendencies within their own borders, their own structural issues 
which could have, and, and in many ways has, uh, laid the groundwork for fascism to arise there. We all know, again, after the Second World War, the United States did not hesitate to recruit former Nazis uh, into its mm-hmm. ranks for various scientific uh, programs, enterprises, Operation Paperclip, uh, as it's known. Uh, and so, again, the nations fought over imperial gain, but it was the people on the ground who fought the ideological struggle against fascism. And you need look no further than the betrayal of Polish, Greek, and Italian anti-fascist movements, as well as the Soviet Union in general, by the Allies, specifically the US, UK, and France, to see the true uh, motivations and aspirations of the great powers. And again, the Soviet Union was part of the Allied powers, but as soon as uh, World War II ended, you see this pivot. Uh, And of course, we lead into the Cold War. But again, we need to critically re-examine a lot of these national narratives we're fed at a young age because, as I stated in the last episode, history is the fruit of power. And we're taught at a young age to view the, world, uh, the Second World War as this triumphant moment uh, for the United States and becoming the world uh, you know, leader and this you know, uh, international hero. But it's far more complicated and it's, whether you were one of those groups I mentioned betrayed by the U.S. after the war or you were a U.S. soldier yourself, you have a very different relationship. And I think that those who constituted the Port Chicago 50 would take much issue with how the, uh, the American role in the Second World War is portrayed. Yes, absolutely. And of course, the, the Port Chicago strike or the Port Chicago mutiny uh, really was a catalyst for other similar incidents that happened in 1944 during World War II, uh, really heroic actions by black soldiers. Of course, that we'll get into in future uh, installments of radical military history. For example, there is a black soldiers rioted in Guam on a naval base in 1945. Uh, 1,000 African-American sailors staged a hun- hunger strike at their base in California to protest discriminatory conditions. So there's a rich history there. And I wanted to conclude this part by saying that in, 19, in the 1990s, Congress decided they wanted to posthumously pardon all of the members of the Port Chicago 50 because, you know, enough time had passed where they didn't have to punish them anymore. And it was long known that they what they did was heroic and right. When they tried to pardon them posthumously, one of the few surviving members of the Port Chicago 50 is a man named Freddie Meeks, and he refused the pardon. He said that the pardon, a pardon is for a guilty person asking for forgiveness. And he was maintaining that we were not guilty. We did what was right. And he was standing by it and didn't want the government's uh, petty pardon so many years later. And he said, quote, I hope that all of America will know about it because it's something that's been in the closet for so long. And so that's why we wanted to highlight this story today in honor of Freddie Meek and all of the Port Chicago 50 and the close to 300 sailors that participated in that mutiny and the 320 African-American sailors uh, who were killed because of some white officers' incompetence and mistreatment of them. And in the spirit of Freddie Meeks, who still maintains that what they did was right, uh, you would also be right for doing something similar to the Port Chicago 50. Whenever you see your life is in danger because of the ridiculous orders of incompetent officers, you have to realize that there was only just a couple of them and you're the one that drives everything. And if all of you get together, uh, you can very quickly stop things in its tracks and demand that it change. So to wrap up, we wanted to give a shout out and thanks to some of the people uh, in the military and veterans that sent some words of support and who have been uh, supporting this project. 
First of all, I wanted to thank Mike Ferner from Veterans for Peace for becoming a patron. Uh, Mike, a longtime activist in the anti-war movement who was a Navy corpsman during the Vietnam War, but never deployed to Vietnam, but actually worked in one of the hospitals where all the people returning from Vietnam were uh, blown to pieces, were being treated. And so Mike uh, became radicalized by seeing the cost uh, on the bodies of American soldiers uh, who were sent to kill and die for no reason in Vietnam. I'm really, really proud to have him as a patron. Uh, I'd like to say thank you to Dennis Lee, who, like myself, is a former ranger from 175. And he told us that we came to the same conclusions a couple decades apart and that the country needs to hear this story. Well, to that I say thank you, Dennis. We're getting that story out there. We're glad to hear your story. And any of you out there, um, we're eager to hear yours as well. I also wanted to read uh, from Clifton Hicks, who's also a, a patron we're very grateful for. Clifton has a really important testimony at Winter Soldier that you can find online. But he wrote to us and said, great work, striking nerves here left and right. We were on the cusp of a serious GI rebellion, rebellion in early 2004 with the stop loss initiation and embarrassment of the Mahdi army uprising in Iraq. My unit was there for 16 months. Morale and materiel were completely worn out at that point. Most of us kept the chains on until we were shipped back to Germany, at which point was the first of the first cab. Uh, deteriorated until the army was forced to completely disband the unit in 2006. So really cool history there, and we hope to interview him about that one day. Uh, X on Patreon says, thanks. I've been in a constant battle of self-hatred and embarrassment after having enlisted because I sort of knew I was betraying my beliefs while joining. I've had to bury a lot of things down deep and I was never too great at keeping those feelings buried either. I've been getting a lot better in 2018 than I have been. And he thanks our podcast for helping that, uh, them in that process. Well, I'll tell you X, I think those feelings are feelings you shouldn't bury and you should try to uh, resolve and, and bring to the surface because many of us deal with those feelings in the initial stages of self-loathing and kind of regret and if you are able to address those authentically then that could be the first step in taking the courage uh, to get out in the manner that works for you so we're with you x um, and anyone else who has similar feelings don't hesitate to reach out to us and we'll do what we can uh, to help you Absolutely. And just want to wrap up with one more active duty soldier uh, like X. I'm just going to, I'm not going to use his name here, but he's a corporal stationed in Germany. And he just said, just finished the first episode of the podcast. I'm excited to hear more from you all in the future. Currently serving da -da -da -da, with plans to ETS solidarity. And thank you for this, Tyler. Uh, same thing goes for you. If you're ever in a position where you feel like you need to get out sooner than when you can, or if you're ever going to be uh, put in a position where you're going to have to do something you don't feel you want to be part of, uh, let us know. And again, thanks for the support. And we've gone through the thank yous uh, and the positive feedback, but I do want to make some space real quick to address uh, the critique that we've received from various people on the left and, and say that we hear you and we understand you. Um, and both myself and Mike will be the first to admit that we always have much to learn. Um, we were complicit uh, in horrible actions and, that, and we're trying to do our small part right now um, to rectify that. So we don't just you know, read the things that make us feel good. We also have our finger on the pulse. Uh, and we think those of you who, even if it's a bit harsh sometimes, you, you have a very important voice to share. Um, and so long as you come at us in good faith, we'll come at you in good faith. And we appreciate you doing your due diligence to make sure 
that uh, that what we're expressing here is actually affecting the chances of creating a, a larger uh, mass movement. While I was at the About Face conference, I, I did take a moment to discuss that. You know, in telling our stories, there's more to it than just veterans expressing self-loathing and self-pity because those in Afghanistan and Iraq don't really have time for our own existential crises. You know, their daily livelihood is affected. And so our task here and everywhere else um, in terms of the anti-war movement and organizing veterans and comrades alike is to take those experiences and stories and transition them into something that is uh, tangible and something that, that can help resist U.S. imperialism uh, in the places where it's the most sordid and grotesque. So again, uh, we, we appreciate all of the feedback we receive, both positive and negative. And, you know, it, it's a dialectical process, right? It's all about resolving these contradictions and uh, and synthesizing these uh, these competing thoughts and, and coming to a conclusion that will allow us to truly uh, build a new future and a better world. So thank you. You've been listening to Eyes Left with Spencer Rapone. And Mike Preisner. All of our content is free for everyone, but we can't do it without your help. So if you support this project, go to patreon.com slash eyes left to make it possible to continue. Be sure to follow us on social media at eyes left pod. And if you're in the military, a military family member or a veteran and want to share your story, report problems and mismanagement or need advice or assistance, knowing your rights, including your right to get the hell out or refuse deployment, please write us at eyes left pod at gmail.com. Nice left.